Okay, wow. Good to have you all here tonight. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best to be heard and understood, so if you're having problems hearing me now, go ahead and raise your hand. And you hear me okay? All right, I don't want to, you know, I'm just getting my voice back, so I don't want to lose it again tonight. But uh, you know how that works. But if I have to, I'll shout at you. <laughs> I'd like to ask you all to please keep um, Pat Cruz's mother in prayer. Pat and her husband are, are junior high leaders, but uh, I believe just earlier uh, Pastor Sam told me that they took her mom to the hospital. So we just want to keep uh, Pat's mother in prayer, Pat uh, Cruz. So uh, join me in a word of prayer and we'll get started here in just a second. Well, Father, we lift up Pat's mom to you right now. I know that uh, she has been battling cancer, and, and uh, so I'm, I'm not sure what the uh, condition is, but you do, and we're just thankful that we can come to you right now and lift her up to you and ask that you would be with her and, and the family, and uh, especially, Lord, just uh, bring uh, your healing to her life and to her heart and to her body. We just lift her up to you now and ask you, Father, to be her strength and her peace today. We look forward to hearing, Lord, news that, that will give honor and glory to you, whatever it is. We, we commit this situation to you. Give uh, uh, Pat and Javier strength and, and peace and wisdom and the rest of the family as well as they're going through this crisis now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn uh, with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 13. I've got to see if this is working. Okay, it's working. I've got to do a little pointing tonight, so. All right. Revelation 13. Now, we're going to finally get to verses 16 through 18. And we're going to finish the chapter. I don't hear any rejoicing going on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to start reading at verse 11 so that we can get a little bit of context here. What this whole chapter, of course, has been about is that we've, uh, we've been given this vision by John that out of the sea, first of all, rose the, uh, the Antichrist or the beast... And then later on, in, out of the land came another beast that we call the false prophet. And of course, all being directed and empowered by the great dragon, that is, of course, Satan. And Satan, we know, has wanted God's place, God's position, God's authority, God's attention, you know, every, everything. He wants everything that God is getting. So he has his own son. You know, when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you see that God speaks to the serpent and says there's going to be this enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that would be born out of Israel, the woman that we saw back in chapter 12. And it was the great dragon doing everything he could to get rid of the woman so that he could get rid of the seed. But in the prophecy, of course, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent but the serpent would, would wound the heel of the Messiah. So there is this constant counterfeiting going on. God has a son. So the enemy has his son. We call him the Antichrist. He is a man. 
but will be given and allowed to be given certain certain powers. And when you think about it, he has a son, but his whole mission is to destroy the Son of God. Now, he could not destroy the Son of God at the cross of Calvary because Jesus died and then he rose again on the third day. That was always his intention because he is God, God the Son. And the son of Satan, the Antichrist, does not have that power. But what we do see is that the one thing that he's going to try to do is to get people to take their eyes off of the son and the father. And there is that scripture in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, that says, that to recognize Antichrist is to recognize the one that denies the Son and the Father. And when you look at all the world religions today, there's really only one religion that works tirelessly to destroy. It is one of their, it is one of their main causes. It is one of their main creeds. That there is only one God and his name is Allah. And he has no son. So, when you hear this creed tonight, as you'll see in a moment, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. The whole idea behind that is to say there is no Messiah that is the Son of God. All right. Keep keep these things in mind. So we get to verse 11 because I want to just give some context to where we are. And so we'll read this very quickly. It says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, speaking, of course, of the false prophet. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, beast whose uh, deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and uh, did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should, should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now we come to the section that we're going to close with tonight. And he, again, the focus on the false prophet he causes all both small and great rich and poor free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads underline the word mark in your bibles and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast underline name or the number of his name, underlie number. And here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. Or calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred three score and six, which of course is six hundred and sixty-six, or as we oftentimes say, Six, six, six. All right. I'd like for you to put on your thinking caps now. In fact, we're going to take a little test. Y'all ready for a test?
You guys are so tired. You're like, no, we're not ready. Okay. Bear with me, okay? Here's the first question of the test. When you hear of a Roman Empire being revived in the last days prophetic scenarios, what is the first thing that comes to mind? When you hear of a Roman Empire being revived, in other words, when you hear talk, when dealing with prophecy, that there is going to be a revived Roman Empire, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, it's an easy test because I'm going to give you the answer. You should be excited about that. Boy, you guys are dead. I've been sick all week, but I'll tell you what. I'm half dead, but I'm not as far as dead as you guys are here. Come on, wake up. All right, as I've alluded to in the past, in the recent past, should you have studied this 40 years ago or so, you might have thought immediately of most of Western Europe, and by now you would consider what is called the EU, the European Union. You say a revived Roman Empire. All the prophecy uh, scholars and all of that for the last 40 years have been pointing to the West. They've been pointing to Europe. And out of that Europe there would be ten nations, a ten-nation confederacy as they used to call it. Until they found out that Europe had 22 nations. And that made it really hard to calculate the 10. So that would have been our thinking. Or it would have been in our thinking the foundation for a one world government and one world religion simply because most Bible prophecy teachers would have agreed with a few variants, but they would have agreed to that. And a lot of them were moving at the time towards saying, okay, there's going to be a one world government, and because it's in Europe, a one world religion where it'll, it'll probably have its, its uh, um, capital in Rome or, or its or headquarters in Rome. So you know what religion we're talking about. And people will say, well, that's a, that's a false Christian religion. All right, now, here's the second question. Because a lot has happened since then. But here's the second question. What do you remember about your study of the extent of the Roman Empire itself of thousands of years ago? What was the extent of the Roman Empire? So now we're really digging into your past here. Your past educational experience in world uh, geography or, or let's say, uh, world history, as it were. Well, here it is. A good student would not exclude some parts of the Middle East, of course, since we all knew that the Romans were very much a controlling force in Judea during the time of the birth of Christ and certainly before. But let's consider the greater extent of the Roman Empire for purposes of our understanding the prophetic implications that we're going to deal with of Antichrist's rule and reign today. Or, I say today, but in the days to come. So let's look at this first map that says at the bottom here, Roman Empire at its greatest extent. All the uh, colorful areas there. Outside of the, you know, the beige part uh, or tan part on the top and the bottom. All, all of that was the Roman Empire. That was a great, probably I would say about 117 A.D. So you'll notice, i got to give him a pointer here. So we're talking about, there's, there's Great Britain there and of course that's, Gallia is France, and Hispania, of course, is Spain, and, and then Italy, and then all of these little countries right around here, and, and where Germany would be, or, uh, and so on and so forth. But here's, here's the area, this area here, that, that, we, that we need to be kind of concerned about. When you look at it from a different uh, view, again, it's the same, pretty much the same uh, 
coverage here. But what, I, what I'm concerned about is this area right here. Going east. This area right here. From here on to the east. Because all of this would have been considered the western part. And this the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So I want to give you a quick and simple history in a nutshell. So that you might see the relevance of this to our study this evening. Because you're probably thinking, how is all of this going to be tied into what we're studying about the Antichrist and the number 666? Well, if you study the Roman Empire back in those days, there was one emperor named Diocletian. And Diocletian became emperor of Rome in 284 A.D. So this was 284 years, you know, after the birth of Christ, as it were, thereabouts. He soon realized that the Roman Empire had grown too large for one man to govern effectively. A year later, in 285 A.D., Diocletian's solution was to split the Roman Empire in half and have it ruled by two emperors. Now I want you to take note of something. This is very important. Diocletian kept the eastern half of, uh, of, uh, for himself due to its greater wealth and trade. You would think that the, uh, the main emperor of the Roman Empire would want to base himself in Rome. Instead, he decides to base himself in the eastern part of the whole of the empire. And there was reason for that. Because it was due to its greater wealth and trade. There, there was greater wealth and trade going on in that region of the Roman Empire than the Western region. Now, Diocletian chose a military officer named Maximian to rule the Western half of the Roman Empire. You might know Maximian as Marcus Aurelius. But in theory, Emperor Maximian was equal to Diocletian in power, but in reality, he followed Diocletian's wishes. And then in 306 AD, which is about 20 years later, a civil war broke out in both empires. The military commander Constantine, how many have heard of Constantine? The military commander Constantine controlled both halves, of the empire by the year 324 AD. Now the Roman Empire again had a single emperor. Now we're not going to talk about Constantine and, and the issue with coming to Christianity. Okay, I just I just trying to establish something else here. Constantine moved the capital from Rome to the eastern city of Byzantium. It's kind of around this area over here. Let's see. I'm trying to find it. Yeah, right, right about there. Now, Constantine had planned for his three sons to rule parts of the empire after his death, but competition between the sons led to another period of conflict. So, in 395 A.D., the empire was once again divided, this time permanently. Now, the greatest con- concentration of strength and wealth in the Roman Empire would find itself in the area surrounding the most precious real estate in all the earth. All of the eastern part, but especially right here. What's there? Israel. Jerusalem. Right down around here. Right there. Okay. It is also the area that all the world sees as important to individual nations and kingdoms for pretty much one byproduct. Do we all know what that is? Oil. Oil. And that is what we are dealing with today. We are hungry, thirsty for oil. When we consider that the primary focus of our conclusion to our study in chapter 13 of Revelation is the number of the beast and its connection to buying and selling in the last half of the tribulation period, 
with its implications to a one-world government and a one-world religion, we must consider this piece of history initially. And I want to tell you what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. He said, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. To some extent, that is the way prophecy works as well. We've always talked about that very basic understanding that when we deal with prophetic issues, God has always given a near fulfillment to prophecy as well as a far fulfillment. And when you consider the far fulfillments, you realize that they are very similar to the original fulfilling. And what's even more similar is where they take place and who's involved. I said a couple of weeks ago that when you consider the Roman Empire around the time of, of Jesus, the majority of the army of the Roman Empire was not made up of European Romans but was made up of all the people that, that they had conquered who became citizens of Rome. And therefore, they would serve in the Roman army and the Roman navy. But they were not European. They came out of the lands. I, I'm trying to, you know, and I'm going to continue to try to drive home a point that for too many years we said, okay, we look at the, the prophecies in the, in, the, in the book of Daniel about the Antichrist, and we almost seem to think that we can only come up with one conclusion, which is this Antichrist is blonde, blue-eyed, and he lives in Europe, and he might be a homosexual, and, and uh, you know, all these other things. And I'm thinking, where are they getting that? Well, where they're getting it is a misinterpretation of Scripture. Because the Scriptures are very clear that the person that is going to be this Antichrist is going to come out of the lands from where all of this is taking place. Why do you think that at the very beginning of, of, of uh, the chapter that the Antichrist or the beast comes out of the sea and the only sea that we know of uh, that John knew was the Mediterranean Sea coming out of that whole region there. And the false prophet coming out of the earth in that very same region. And if the false prophet represents the religious aspect of a one world order, and that these two together are in complete uh, opposition to the nation of Israel, then what conclusion must we draw? So we've talked about considering the alternative to the Antichrist being someone, as I said, who will rise from the area of the Mediterranean uh, rather than the standard European model, since this is partly what we've learned in the earlier part of the chapter. Let's not forget then also this. Don't forget that the abomination of desolation can only take place in Jerusalem. The abomination of desolation can only take place in Jerusalem, for that is where the Holy of Holies is located. Or will be located, I should say. So that all makes more sense to see the epicenter of most prophetic activity in the location of the great conflict between Jews and Arabs. And may I say parenthetically, Jews and Muslims. Especially Jews and Muslims. There are Arab Israelis today in the land who are citizens of Israel. And many of them... Uh, join the uh, military for Israel and they fight for Israel because that's their land. But the conflict is religious, not so much political. I think we've talked about this before. But now we're faced with dealing with these last three verses and the extent that the Antichrist in his political authority and the false prophet 
and his religious authority will go. How far is this going to go? So let's look at verse 16 now. And he causes all. And and the word all is a big word. It's not just a three-letter word. I mean, it's a big word. It means all. All who are on the earth at that time, except for those who refuse, of course, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But he causes all, both small and great. Notice, both those of, of, of renown and those who are nothing, as far as, you know, people are concerned. There are the small and there are the great. There are the famous and there are the non-famous. There are the rich, there are the poor. There are the free and there are the slaves, the bond. It says he causes all. It, it goes beyond all lines with the people in the world. But he says to receive, he causes all to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now, literally it means on, on their hand or on their forehead. I I emphasize this because it is to be something that identifies. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, it's the false prophet that is still being referenced here in this passage. The difficulty is not in the causing all to receive the mark. Remember, they're going to deceive this world. If even possible, the very elect. But that's not going to be possible. If they, but if it was possible, they would even deceive the elect. If it wasn't for the fact that God, first of all, has taken the church out of the way already by this, by this time, of course. And that there are tribulation saints who remember what they heard about the gospel or there are those people who actually heard the preaching of the two witnesses that were before the before the uh, uh, the temple or being affected by the 144,000 which we still have yet to deal with which uh, well some of it which we'll get to next time but it's not difficult for us in, in, in the causing of all to receive a mark the world has been deceived What's difficult is the mark itself. What is difficult for us is the mark itself. None will be excluded, it says, from receiving the mark. Small, great, rich, poor, free, slave. But the mark itself is in question. We would tend to think of it as being some way of buying and selling through modern technology. Now, I I don't have a a major problem with it. I have a minor problem with it, but I I don't have a major problem with it. I mean, certainly... You know, in these last days, we have seen technology uh, soaring as far as how much is happening, how much is going on. What uh, I mean, I was watching Fox News the other day, and then they were they were showing all these new devices for Christmas. You know, that, that you can put a thing on your window and just stick it up there, and then it just goes around and cleans your own window. You know, now you can really say I don't do windows because that little machine's doing the window. And, and all kinds of other things, you know. I mean, you can, you can use your phone, and right now, if you thought you forgot to turn something off in your house, you could turn it off from where you're sitting. But don't let me catch you. It's just, you know, just amazing what's going on. More technology, there's also more thievery going on. You know, stolen identities and stolen things, you know, that go on, because the heart of man is wicked. That doesn't change. So, we got these microchips and we got digital numbering systems, their credit card systems, infrared scanners, which right now is that's kind of old tech now. But, uh, uh, and the like. And when we talk about it this way, we would think that this would be all, listen, all for convenience. Rather than an identification system to reveal whether we're for Antichrist or against him. We talk a lot about, and we hear a lot of, uh, of, of uh, prophecy experts say, well, you know, now they've come up with a chip that they can put under your skin. You won't even be able to see it. My problem with that is, this is telling me it's got to be seen. And we'll see why in a moment. Because when we are dealing with whether we're for Antichrist or against him, it is going to be a matter of life or death. It is going to be a matter of life or death. 
I certainly am not saying that technology will not be involved in this last day scenario. I'm, I, I, I'm not saying that, but I don't know. Do, do, do any of you know just because we see the mention of this technology? But I wonder if we've been too influenced by science fiction. And I wonder if we've been too influenced by Star Wars, Star Trek generations. So let's examine the word Mark here. I asked you to underline it in your Bibles. <coughs> Excuse me. It is the Greek word. I don't have it up here. But it's the Greek. The Greek. The Greek. <laughs> Is the Greek word? Is <laughs> the Greek word karagma? Karagma, spelled C H A R A G M A. Karagma. The word mark in the Greek is karagma, which is defined as, and this is a very important definition. So I'm going to take it very slow, and I want to give it to you clearly. It is defined as a scratch or an etching in effect a stamp some kind of a stamp it, it, it also represents the word graven where do we get that from a graven image right something that is engraved or a sculptured figure, that's what it's used oftentimes for as well. Consider as well a tattooing of sorts. A tattooing of sorts. Because the, the, the root word for karagma is, is a word that, that literally means to sharpen a point to cut. So here's the context. It is all these things that represent a badge of servitude because karagma means a mark that identifies you. It is a seal that identifies you as a slave or a, a, a person who is under the, you know, who is a, a servant, as it were, but, but really a, 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 a bond slave, as it were. Now, why is this important? I want you to think. Think of what Islam means. Submission. And all have to come to submission to Allah. And to that shahada, which is that statement, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Just kind of keeping that thought afresh here. It represents a badge of servitude. It would be an easy mark to see on both the slave and the free man. It will also function as a seal that will identify to whom a person belongs, which means there will really be no free men for all will be slaves. And I think it would be good to see that this functions as a counterfeit to a biblical mark or even a biblical seal. Because remember, the enemy is a counterfeit at all times. So there was mention of biblical marks or seals in the scriptures. There is one that the children of Israel were to apply to their lives. Notice, a mark that applies to the life of a child of Israel. And we all know that because we hear it from time to time in our services. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, this is called in Hebrew the Shema. 
Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echod. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign, notice a sign or a mark or a seal, upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Now, you're all familiar with that when we do baby dedications and all. But the Lord was not really telling them to bind the Word of God in a little box or strap it to their their heads or their hands. But it's interesting to note that the Jewish men have taken it to mean that. And so you still see Orthodox Jews today wearing what is called phylacteries, which are these little boxes that hold scriptures in them. And they'll put them on in their days of prayer and and they'll wrap their arms with it and there'll be a box on their arm or their hand. And there'll be the, the, the phylactery right on the head, you know, right in the forehead. And it's got scripture in it. But that, you know, as, 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 as graphic as that might be for people to see, God was not speaking about it in terms of binding it in that way, but to bind it in their hearts. Now we know that because when God tells them about circumcision, He does want them to be circumcised. He commanded them to do it. But what was more important to God was the circumcision of the heart. So, so think then about that. And, and, and yet, you know, they're very devout and they do that. When you go to Israel, you see this at the, uh, at the Western Wall when we go there in Jerusalem. But what God was telling them was that in all they do, He was to be part of their lives. That was the sign. It was to be part, He was to be part of their lives. In fact, He was to be the very center of their lives. And how much more does that have to apply to us as believers in Jesus Christ? That Jesus Christ needs to be the very center of our life. That is the mark on our life. How we live our lives. You know, we can get into prophecy and forget that God is more concerned about our righteousness as believers in Jesus Christ than our knowledge of prophecy. Do you all understand what I'm saying there? So from their thoughts to their actions, God was to be the focus, and then that, it, was, uh, it would flow from their lives. That was what would flow from their lives, was this devotion to God. It is about reflecting our love and devotion for the Lord, but not so with Antichrist. This is not the way it's going to be. I mean, this is going to be, when, when, when you mention servitude, when you mention a badge of servitude, or you mention that they will be, you know, all these people have to have a mark, an etching or a scratching or a tattoo on their forehead or on their hands, or even still something that's not even so uh, uh, physical in the sense of embedding it into the hands, But what about scarves or these headbands that have words on them, by the way, which I'm giving you a little clue of where we're going here. That give certain statements of blasphemy against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and a blasphemy of Jesus Christ. And this is what he causes all to wear if you're going to buy or sell. Now think about that. We buy and sell, which is commerce. For what reason? If you just think of the very base reason is to feed your family. To take care of your family. To have enough to feed them. But if you can't buy or sell, because you don't take the mark, 
the only thing that's left for you is to die. See, we can complicate things and say, you know, the world's financial system is going to be, you know, all computerized and all. That's okay. Well, it already is. It already is. But remember that Satan is not a creative being, but he is an imitator and he is a counterfeit and he will also imitate God's mark on his people. As seen back in Revelation 7 verses 3 and 4, he is imitating the mark that God has put upon his own people. Revelation 7 3, he said, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. But the sealing here is a, is a word. It is not karagma, but it is a word that has a very similar meaning. Very similar meaning. So it is a seal that, that protects, whereas the mark of the beast is one that, even though you get it and you can buy and sell, is one that's going to destroy you, as we'll see in just a moment. Because some, they will take the mark of the beast willingly. There will be those who will say, yes, we'll take that mark. For others, it will be forced upon them. And still, the, the others that do not take it will, of course, die for their faith in Christ. Because they don't take it because they realize that there is a consequence to taking the mark. And those are the tribulation saints. But consider the warning given by John in the next chapter, uh, Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. He says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, notice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And it's talking about those who receive it both, who willingly receive it and even those who have to be forced to it, but they don't back away and and just say, I'm not taking it. Now, isn't it interesting? Did you notice uh, the mention of, of fire and brimstone? You know that fire and brimstone was, was, is actually reserved for the devil and his angels. Why then will man who takes this mark of the beast also be included in the fire and brimstone? And by the way, you know how people will criticize you know, pastors and preachers and all kinds of stuff because we're fire and brimstone. That's all we ever talk about. No, we talk about the love of Jesus. That he came to rescue us from all of this. These are people that have refused the truth. They have rejected the truth. And they're taking themselves judgment. Does any Christian have to worry about taking the mark of the beast? No. If you truly walk for Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about it. Besides, if you are a believer today, thank the Lord that, you know, he's going to get us out of the way so he can finish what he began to do with Israel and also with the world and, and, and with the enemy. So, just remember that. But if all of this is about worship, more than about a cashless society, because what have, we, what have we read from the beginning of this chapter to where we are today? That the false prophet is going to keep pointing to this Antichrist who has desecrated now the temple and to say he is God because that has always been what he's desired and of course then also to worship the dragon the Antichrist and the dragon. So if this is about worship, listen, if it is more about worship than it is about a cashless society, about taking a mark because then you, you know, all, all the world's going to, you know, know everybody's business and blah, blah, blah. Then it has to reflect, folks. If it's about worship, it has to reflect identification to the God that is being worshipped. The mark of the beast has to reflect identification to the God 
that is being worshipped. Look at verse 17 of our text. Look at what it says. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Now this becomes very crucial. I'm going to really spend more time about the, the name rather than on the number of his name because I feel that this is really where we kind of forget to look at this mark from this, from this uh, perspective. There's the mark, kerygma, and then there's the name, onoma, in the Greek, onoma. And I'll talk about that, that word in just a moment. Oh, by the way, the word number is arithmos. Arithmos, we get the word arithmetic from it. And we'll deal with that a little later. Now, instead of just a mark for identification for the purpose of surviving, there is a name attached as well. There is a name attached. But we're not dealing with just a generic name. We're not talking about Bob the Antichrist. Or Bill the Antichrist. Or we're not talking about any kind of, you know, Ahmed. You know, or whatever. We need to understand what name means here as well. It is the Greek word, as I said, onoma, which means... It means authority or character. Authority or character. Do you remember when we were studying the very beginnings of the, the life of, of Jacob? He was named Jacob? Supplanter? Deceiver? Thief? It spoke of character. Yet it was his name. So, this is why this is important here. Because a title may be more telling. We're dealing with a title. That name is a title. I wonder, would, would you remember this? Because we're so close now to the holiday, uh, the Christmas holiday. It says, uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear his son. Uh, and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Well, who's Emmanuel? It's Jesus, right? And Jesus is his name. And even his name, Jesus, which means God is salvation, but that's his name. But this is his title. God with us. God with us. Because Jesus, you know, calling him Emmanuel doesn't make him Hispanic. Es Manuel. No, no, no. It's his title. And his character. And his authority. God with us. We know that God with us is not Jesus' name, but a title just as... His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How'd you like to call Jesus that when he comes in through the door? Oh, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, you know, the Almighty God, and all that. No, no, my name's Jesus. Those are my titles. So you understand now, that's what that word name means. Well, not there, but the word name that I wanted you to underline. So this suggests that we're dealing with a title that reflects not only the character of the person, but the intention of the person as well. The intention of the person as well. What we have to be careful about is attempting to understand the, the number to be mentioned through something called uh, gematria. Gematria, G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A, Gematria or Gematria, which is, by the way, an ancient mystical form of numerology that assigns numerical value to each letter uh, from any given name. So many people have used this form of numerology, which is actually closely rooted to a form of Jewish mysticism known as Kabbalah. 
And they try to use this to fit an antichrist from current history or events. Uh, they've tried it, you know, the, to add this, uh, you know, num numerical value to President Clinton, President uh, Carter, Hillary Clinton, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush. Somehow they make all these letters come out to 666. That's, that's what I'm saying is gematria, gematria. Trying to make all these things come out, you know, like, uh, Gorbachev was another one. Uh, Mickey Mouse, for all I know. Is, is the Antichrist as well? I don't know. So, I mean, you know, we could do a lot with this, this kind of stuff, which is just, uh, oh, Bill Gates as well, uh, you know, so it's... But what's the number? And is it a number? Well, we know it's a number because it mentions it as a number. So we're going we're gonna to investigate this issue of number just to start off going into chapter 14 next time. But look, look at verse 18, so you'll know what we're talking about. Here's wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 600, three score and six, which is 666. Now it's interesting that some of the manuscripts that the early church fathers had at their disposal, I'm talking about biblical manuscripts. The manuscripts of the New Testament... that were written by scribes carefully, as carefully as they could do it. But some of the early church fathers had some of these manuscripts that had different numbers. For example, one, one, one manuscript had the number 616, 616, instead of 666, claiming as... Irenaeus did, one of the early church fathers, that it was due to scribal error. Another manuscript had 665, so they lost one number there somewhere. 665. I don't know how they got that, because the symbols, uh, which are, it's C-H-I is the first symbol, C-H-I, or Chi, and this, the next one is key, which is X-I. And the, and the X is a kind of an important symbol too. We'll talk about that a little bit too. But it's key. And then the third symbol for this number is stigma. So it's chi, key, stigma. And so these symbols, as, as uh, Walid Shobat has described, are not so much numbers... And from his perspective, I'm giving this just let, you know, letting him kind of tell us from his perspective. He's a, an ex-Muslim uh, uh, terrorist who became a believer in Jesus Christ and now is a major supporter of Israel. But in any event, he's described that these are not so much numbers as foreign symbols in Arabic that resembled the numbers in Greek. His assessment is quite fascinating and it's worthy of consideration from this standpoint that it may be consistent with our look at Islam being relevant in the time of the tribulation. So once again, I ask you to bear with me as we just consider this as an alternate view. Just something to consider because how many of us really know what's going to happen? Okay, so Shobat states that the number 666 in Greek very much resembles the most common creed of Islam. The most common creed is Bismillah. Bismillah. B-I-S... Uh, let's see. B-I-S-M-I-L-L-A-H. Bismillah. Now for some of you, you know, hardcore rock fans from the 70s, you might remember a song called Bohemian Rhapsody, sung by Queen. Well, there's a section of that song. There was a rock section and a soft section, and then there was this operatic section. And in that operatic section, there's this little place where it says, Bismillah, no, we will not let you go. They were actually saying Bismillah. And I kept listening to that. I said, what the heck are they saying? And, and so I started thinking, well, the guy who wrote this, Freddie Mercury, was, was actually, you know, he was... His family was from Zanzibar. I think they were also Indian, but they were very much into Zoroastrianism, which 
kind of combines a few other religions, especially Islam and Hinduism and a few other things. So he's using all of these to tell a story of himself, which nobody ever really understands. But I just found it interesting that that word was there, Bismillah. Well, it means, here it is. It's a very simple creed. It means in the name of Allah. Bismillah means in the name of Allah. Now, that's the Greek number of 666. The, the way that it's in, in, in its form here has actually in the center the chi and then the key on the outside over here, the X, and over here on the other side, the stigma. Now, just, just uh, looking at the Codex Vaticanus, which is one of the manuscripts from AD 350, you'll notice this is the text from Revelation 13, stating the number 666. Now, of course, you know you read it in which direction? Left to right, Greek. Arabic reads in the other direction. The symbols over to the, the, the stigma, the chi and the key, if read the other direction, it's very similar. The only thing you don't see here is actually the, the X symbol, but you'll see it in other things later. This is just to show you uh, how close it may be. And by the way, that symbol in the middle there, it's, it's laid to the side in the, in, the, in, the, in the Greek text, but it's supposed to resemble a serpent, interestingly enough. These kids are wearing their headbands that have on their head the, what is called, the shahada, or the shahadatan, or the shahadatan. It's, it's that statement, which is the greater creed, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, and means his only prophet, but there's no God but Allah. By the way, the word Allah does not mean God. I don't know if you knew that or not. It means curse. It means curse. And Allah is not God as far as you know how we all say, well, we all worship the same God. Sorry, no, we don't. The whole reason for that statement on these young boys, on the armies of Hamas and Hezbollah that have their own headbands and you see them lined up and they're, you know, they're all wearing the headband or they have a band on their right arm. The reason why they wear that is because it is blasphemy against the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It is blasphemous because what they're saying is there is no son. And Jesus is not the Messiah. He didn't die. It was a cover-up. He never really died on the cross. The whole idea is to destroy Christianity and the Messiah and the understanding of Messiah. That's what they're taught. I saw a little picture of a five-year-old kid wearing a headband like that and actually wearing uh, something that looked like a bomb around them because they were commemorating the heroes that are suicide bombers. This is what they teach. And may I ask you, do we all worship the same God? Because if we worship the same God, wouldn't it be just great? We would all be doing the right thing and the same thing, but we don't. It's, it's really sad. So, this slide here, that is their badge of servitude, which says there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. What is our mark today? What is our mark as believers in Jesus Christ? I want to close with this.
And I hope that we see what the mark is for us. Galatians 6, verses 14 through 18. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, notice, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now notice this. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Do we bear the marks? Not the physical marks. We, none of us bear those marks. But do we bear the marks in our hearts and in our minds of what Christ has done for us for peace and mercy's sake? Which when you, when you realize what Islam is all about, when they talk about peace, the only way you can have peace is that you surrender and submit in servitude to Allah and the Quran and to Muhammad as the prophet, or else you die. That's their peace plan. But our peace is in the Prince of Peace, who died for us and rose again, the Son of God and God the Son. Ah, this was very difficult tonight. All right, let's pray.